RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. Hello, guys. Hey, Dusty. Dusty. So, as, as you can hear, Mike is back with us today on the, the latest RPG lessons learned. Thank you for having me again. Yep. And today we'll talk about the two dungeon dashes that you ran. Yep. They, uh, they were pretty fun. Before we get into those, RPGLessonsLearned.com. It will redirect you to TFRadio.net with the RPG Lessons Learned subcategory. All of our subscribe buttons are there. And hey, while you're there, if you're going to do some shopping on Amazon, why not use the TF Radio Amazon shopping link? It doesn't cost you anything extra, and they kick a few cents Brian's way to pay for all this podcasting equipment. We were just marveling over the number of microphones here in RFC Studios that let us record this. We're, we're, we're kind of piggybacking on RFC, Radio Free Cybertron's equipment to record our little show. And uh, Brian, as always, thank you for that. Well, Dusty, thank you for being here. And yeah, if people want to use our Amazon links, that would be awesome. Now, of course, the equipment in here is already paid for, but uh, God, there's so many expenses month over month. People forget that. I forget that until I have to pay for it. Yeah, hosting's not cheap. God, no, it's not. <laughs> all right, so in all seriousness, uh, Dungeon Dashes. Um, actually, Mike, if you don't mind, I was going to talk about my, my characters for a few minutes. Yeah, I think that's great. So I, I did some digging, because I've moved... Um, I've moved once since we played this. Um, it feels like twice, but no, it's only been once. Um, no, it has been twice. I, was I in the apartment when we played this game, or was I in my house? You were in your house by the time you played this okay. game, because so, we were in the apartment in Statesville when we played this. Got it. So I've moved once, and I finally dug up my character sheets. Um, we were theorizing on previous episodes uh, that I had a dragonborn either paladin or cleric. No, I was rocking two fighters. Wow. Okay. So my my dragonborn Ulfin was uh, a, a fighter with the subclass of knight. So really focused on defense and all that. And for the for a paltry paltry amount of healing, he had taken the combat medic feat, which let him use stabilize the dying as a minor action and gave him a bonus to heal checks. So just to double down on something I think we talked about in a previous episode, we literally had zero healing ability in this brand new party that we just created. Hey, I had a feat. <laughs> I totes had a feat. You could maybe like roll someone to stabilize them to keep them from dying forever. Yes. That's useful, though. You know? Think of all the times we don't have that. It, it, it wouldn't stand someone up in the middle of a fight, but it would keep them from per- permadeath. So I guess you're right. We basically had no healing. A um, couple things I want. So we, we mentioned before that that the characters in fourth edition, a first level character in fourth edition, was like a like a third level character in other editions. I'm looking at my level two character sheet. We had leveled up on the previous couple of games, and I had leveled up to two in preparation for the game you're about to talk about. This level two character had an AC of 22, and he had 39 hit points. <laughs> yep. And by the way. This character was built using the wizard's online character builder. He was completely legal and legit. So you didn't, like, fudge it with rolling? No, no, I didn't roll my own dice. DMs don't hate it when I roll my characters. <laughs> <laughs> thinking thinking back to that uh, to that fourth edition character creator, I remember it was very easy to min-max characters in, in that system because you literally could just you know, swap back and forth between sque- screens and adjust 
adjust a stat here, adjust a stat there. And then once you had your numbers right, you then had the menu of feats you could go into and then add a feat, remove a feat for, uh, for, for, for noticing which feat was boosting which stat or, or taking away from like the other here's stat. stat there's stat. Everywhere, Everywhere stat, stat, stat. <laughs> so we bust on fourth edition a lot. Um, but I'm going to be really complimentary for a few minutes here or for a minute. Um, these two fighters are very different. So the Dragonborn is a knight, and the Minotaur was a slayer. And those two fighters, very, very different. One had a shield, one just had a two-handed weapon. Um, very different builds, different feats, uh, and frankly, different abilities in combat. So I really liked that 4th Edition had all that variation, even in the same class. And I, I kind of liked what you're saying about how easy it was to optimize. I really liked the, the character builder. Or you could go back a screen, forward a screen, tweak, tweak, you know, and, and, and wind up with a character that you were really into. Now, you had to play a couple games before the character builder made sense, but I think that's probably every D20 system. I'd say that's pretty fair. So I do want to talk about so all the cards. I'm, I'm looking at two pages of cards, of just cards. So two uh, three-by-three, like, baseball card-type pages of cards. And I was sharing with Mike earlier... Uh, and I'll let you make fun of me again for the wow comments, that I had laid out my cards in these pages just like my action bar in World of Warcraft, where, you know, at the, at, at the beginning, I have all my stuff for starting a fight, like charge and, and, and whatnot. And then toward the end, I have all my stuff for finishing a fight. So when I played wow, and I would click the action bar, my mouse would drift from left to right as I progressed through a fight. And then I'd have, you know, a section in the middle where I would loop through all my spam stuff until I won. But I, but I had this left-to-right progression, and I did the same thing with my cards. Here are my cards for starting a fight. Here are my cards for ending a fight. Here are my cards for random things I might need to do during a fight that are very situational. And that's how I laid out my cards. And then I pointed out to Dusty how you really actually clicked your action bar in WoW and didn't use the number keys and keybinds to run through your activities. And, and he said no. And then I let him know that we can't be friends anymore. Yeah, I was a terrible WoW player. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. That's okay. Most you're, people you're probably better off yeah, not you're, knowing. You're better off not knowing. Uh, the Minotaur only had an AC. So how different are these characters, right? Minotaur had an AC of 17 compared to 22. Uh, and his his uh, powers are all about just damage. And he has way fewer cards. Like that, that dragon board. Um, it, it didn't. The, but the two three by three sheets weren't completely full. But the Minotaur probably has roughly two-thirds the cards that the uh, Dragonborn had. He just had a lot less stuff with his uh, with his two-handed great weapon. But, uh, man, he did a lot more damage. So I think it'd be interesting if uh, maybe next time we talk to Chris or Brian, if you remember playing through this game, which, which character you played and, and how manageable it was. I think it'd be interesting to get some of your guys' feedback on 4E. Was I in this game? You were in this Are game. Are you sure? You were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you okay. were. So let's talk about the actual game itself and see if it jogs any memories loose for you, because I, I definitely remember it. Yep. Okay, so at the end of uh, at the end of the last session, basically you guys had defeated uh, Brute, the bugbear, and in Brute's personal effects through looting him, you found a letter um, that he had written to his cousin Bort, or it was from his cousin Bort. I can't remember which one right now. Um, you found a letter, basically, that uh, that gave you a lead, into yeah, Brian shaking his head because his name is Bort. No, I'm, oh. so find the letter. It reminds me of the old episode, uh, Three Stooges short, Disorder in the Court. 
Do you remember that one? I don't remember that one. Oh, find the letter. Oh, had a had a uh, parrot in it. I, that there's a letter I, tied to it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember that at all, but that's awesome. Um, but basically, your, your dad would remember that. No, my dad would absolutely remember that. And then he talked for like 20 minutes about the history of that episode and how one of the characters had had certain issues and blah blah blah. Anyway, um, you had this letter that was basically your tie-in to the uh, next step of the campaign. And um, I, this is the part I'm fuzzy on because the first Dungeon Dash, uh, Wraithwood Cavern, um, basically had a hook where your party had to go talk to someone to get these scrolls to cleanse the necromantic poison danger in a dungeon. Um, so I had to figure out how to get you guys to get that letter to someone in town so you could activate that hook to get the materials you needed to cleanse this dungeon. Um, but I think it was simply, hey, you found this letter. Why don't you go talk to someone in town and see if they can give you more information? And then basically you found that plot device person in town who said, oh, Bort must have been supplying brute skeletons and necromantic uh, monsters through. Ne- necromantic goods and services. It does. Necromantic <laughs> goods and services. Your your best goods and services at the best necromantic price guaranteed. Um <laughs> But uh, basically, there there was a there was a link between the two through Wraithwood Cavern, where there was a portal from the cavern to Bort's secret hideout, um, and that that was essentially how I I chained these two dungeon dashes together. Um, have we talked about the author of the dungeon dashes yet? I don't think we have. I don't think we've talked about the idea of a dungeon dash either yet. Oh, oh, that's yeah, that's a good point. You want to take that? Yeah. Um, so basically, a dungeon dash is a standalone. Uh, they literally call them side quests for four e. Uh, so it's a, a a little published adventure that the dungeon dash is essentially a map with three encounters and a few traps. Um, so basically I combine these two dungeon dashes to make a six encounter adventure. Um, so wizards put out an entire book uh, of dungeon dashes and uh, they were called dungeon delves. They called them delves. So I have this, this whole, and I, I love it. So I mentioned before that my favorite two books came from fourth edition. It's the, Dungeon Master's Guide 2, which is full of great DM advice, regardless of edition. And then the Player Strategy Guide, which is full of great player advice about how to play your character and build a story, again, regardless of edition. But probably my third favorite book, and, and, and hey, I love 5th edition, and I like the system more. But as far as books, my third favorite was the Dungeon Delve book from Wizards that had, um, I think it was three... Three delves. No, it was a delve. It was one through twenty. So maybe it was twenty delves, each one level appropriate, and they were side quests. But these two dungeon delves came off of um, why can't I drive through RPG? So or, or RPG now. So RPGnow.com or drive through RPG.com. No affiliation, but a great site to to purchase PDFs from independent authors. And this guy, Kurt Sparkle, um, S P A R K U H L, put out these two free. And they're still free to this day. Dungeon Dash is for 4th edition that, that Mike ran. So Wraithwood Cavern and, and the Cult of Bane. I, check those out. Yep. Um, and Dusty, you totally banged the table during that. Did I? Yes, you did. Oh. Oh. Brian is the experienced podcaster. He's trying to teach us all the things not to do. And you asked me to let you know while recording. Yeah, I said it'd be funny. Let, let us know on the air. And Brian's like, no, it comes off as terrible. I'm going to come off like, I don't want to say the, the word. Uh, I'll, I'll come off like a jerk. And I was like, no, it's funny. We we, we want to learn, and, and having someone experience teach us, hey, it's podcasting lessons learned while we do RPG lessons learned. At least it wasn't me this time. Apparently, I was guilty of that quite a few times in the last last couple episodes. That's okay. 
And Mike and I are trying to take turns more consciously because we had audio issues last time where we were both going through the same processor. We're not this time. Oh, we're not? I, fi- I fixed that. Okay, cool. Sweet. Um, so yeah, that, that's essentially what a Dungeon Dash was. So I combined these two to make one adventure. And if I remember correctly, I think the idea was, oh, I'll combine these two Dungeon Dashes to make a, a regular size adventure. But no, I, I think it took us pretty much all day to get these to these three Dungeon Dashes. And I think a lot of that went back to the the slog that 4E combat was. Because um, these are mostly just combat encounters. There's a couple of small traps, a couple of little things here that, that didn't take long to figure out. It was pretty much just like, hey, here's here's combat encounters. Yeah, that's actually a good lesson learned for 4th edition that we've sort of touched on in the past but haven't really hammered home, which is, how do I phrase this? Um, The scope of your adventure in 4th edition really almost couldn't be small enough. It, it could never be too small. So we, we had played... Um, those those two adventures, the, the Iron Circle adventures, uh, the Reavers of Harkenwold, that came with the Dungeon Master's Kit for the 4th Edition Essentials. And it's this huge, expansive story. You know, We covered that in a previous episode where you're trying to get help from these armies to defeat this other army, and, and it's this really big, epic story. And then after that, I ran Dusk, which is this extremely small in scope story, nothing to do with um, armies. Just uh, you know, a couple of vampires that you're taking out, and uh, you're rescuing this one girl and not a whole valley, and that was so much more satisfying. So I think in 4E, the smaller the scope of your adventure, the better off you were. And it constantly amazed me how very little content, a few monsters, would fill up hours of game time in 4E. And it's funny you should mention that, because the, the scope of this Dungeon Dash is actually tiny. So literally, this this first Wraithwood Cavern, your objective is to go in this cavern and dispel five like necrotic summoning spells, circles with these with these uh, scrolls you get from the from the plot device person. But the size of this dungeon is ridiculous, and I think Brian's going to post uh, pictures of the uh, the dungeon I recreated again yeah. for this episode. Um, but for for three combat encounters, this thing was huge. I mean, you could have crammed just so much stuff in here. And just taking the time to move a mini through this huge dungeon alone in itself is just kind of like this this huge scope idea. Yeah, there were so many traps that you had us move through the dungeon in initiative order, didn't you? Uh, I think, yeah, I think on this one there were a lot of traps. The The second one wasn't as bad. But yeah, this, this one had a ton of traps. Um, and th- this dungeon also kind of spoke just to generic difficult terrain. It was like, hey, this cavern is, is swampy and murky and there's moss everywhere. And it literally says, I'm not marking the difficult terrain on the map. You figure out where you want it to be difficult terrain or not. So it's kind of like, well, is the whole dungeon difficult terrain? I don't, I struggle with that a little bit. But yeah, there, there were quite a few traps in this dungeon too. Is this the one that had all the spider webs? Yes. This had, uh, spider webs and, uh, and, uh, uh, vines that acted as traps. The basically vines that would attack you too. Um, but yeah, do we just want to go through this encounter through counter real quick and recap it? Yeah, yeah, let's do. Okay. Um, so the first encounter was literally nothing. Um, it was like, <laughs> hey, you walk into the cavern and there's this necrotic circle that you have to dispel. Use the scroll that the wizard gave you to dispel the circle. And that was it. Um, when I do my, ne- my, my necromancy, I like my necrotic circle to be right at the entrance. You know, just, you know, a good easy access. 
Yeah, start the ritual right away. And and frankly, for your more casual customers, you really don't want them going any deeper into your lair. So you, you, you may you, as well have one of your circles right in the foyer. You come home, you take off your shoes, you let the hellhound out to use the bathroom, <laughs> and you're right there in your necrotic circle. Perfect. Anyway, anyway. Um, but it, it, in all seriousness, we, we're, I'm, since we're making fun, I, I think Kurt Sparkle did a great job with these. And he, he does a this having one right by the entrance does a good job of setting up. Here's how you can. Here's how you dispel a circle. Yeah, and I mean it, it was the objective of the dungeon. There were five total. So if you didn't know what you were doing right off the dungeon, you could complete the entire dungeon and then have to backtrack and redo it all, which is a huge waste of time. So as a as a simple tutorial, it, it made sense. Um, the second encounter was basically another circle with uh, four regular spiders and one slightly stronger spider. Um, and this was, I think, to kind of get you into the idea of, oh, this is a spider-infested cavern. Be on the lookout for spider traps. I know that I wasn't in this game then if it was full of spiders. No way. Why, why is that? I hate spiders. <laughs> would, would you have gone home? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so I remember, you're, you're jarring a memory loose here, Mike. I remember before we played this game, so I had a ton of, I still have a ton of minis. I'd invested so much in minis and maps. I hate to calculate how much money I've spent on RPGs over the years. But I remember you sent me a list of miniatures. And I remember like the number of spiders. I was like, that's a lot of spiders. But hey, I had them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do remember that. Yeah, you, you brought over the minis for this game. And yeah, you so, had everything we needed. Speaking of money you spent uh, on our Facebook page, uh, I did post... Uh, photos of your book of my library yeah so brian was over a couple weeks ago um, we had a kind of christmas in july party and i was showing him uh, you know upstairs my collection all my books that i've spoken about on the show and uh, he's like oh i've got to take pictures of these and the room wasn't ready for pictures at all uh it was fairly organized because we keep the house fairly neat but uh I, I should go back and actually reset the shelves and make the shelves a little bit you know more organized and and do the same thing sometime as so as we're recording this i literally just posted the photo to facebook so so but uh yeah i uh i just posted a photo of uh you guys here in the room with me and uh speaking of disorganized this room is the the definition of disorganized we're all all of our lives are in flux right now yes it's a work in progress it's looking good though um so yeah, um, actually mentioning that, it also just sparked my memory too, because we're going to have the same issue with the next dungeon, which is basically nothing but skeletons, and you brought all the skeletons, and it was also a lot of skeletons, in, and you, you made that easily. Yeah, we did it all as one session, so I'm bringing over a ton of minis, and I was like, all right, well, I guess I know what we're facing. Pretty much, yep. So I, 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 ruined, the, I ruined the dungeon no, for you. No, no, not at all. Um, next encounter was, uh, basically a wraith and some chokers. So, uh, this was also a room that had the, uh, the strangling vine trap in it, where basically if you triggered the trap, it was a vine that would pick you up and do damage until you took off like 15 hit points of the vine against an AC of 16. So in fourth edition, a vine has an armor class of 16. Yeah, the math. That the is math. crazy. Well, yeah. that that's exactly why fifth edition has bounded accuracy, which I don't know if we should talk about that on the show, because so many places talk about bounded accuracy in fifth edition because of things like that, Mike, where, you know, the math, the higher level you got, the easier stuff got. So yeah. the, the, the fourth edition, a lot of things broke down. In 5th edition, I, I, do, I do think they addressed that. 5th edition is my favorite D20 system. But anyway, yeah. um, I, I do miss, though, you're, so lessons learned. I miss terrain. 
I miss terrain being a factor. I miss difficult terrain being a factor. I miss a vine trap that would immobilize you. I miss kobolds that had glue traps and that being a big deal because where they pinned you down and where they stuck you on the map made a difference. I miss that tactical. Now, I got too much of it, and I was friggin' sick of it when we actually played 4th Edition. Yep. But I miss it a little bit now. I want to do that every so often. I agree. I, I I think I like what you've been doing with Difficult Terrain when we play Theater of the Mind. I think you take theater... I think you take Difficult Terrain into account when we're trying to do something special or specific with the terrain. What I didn't like about Difficult Terrain was, oh, there's this fuzzy spot on the map, and because you're standing in that fuzzy spot... Some bullcrap happens with the mice dice where you take a minus two or something, something. That's what I don't miss about difficult terrain. But what I like about difficult terrain is where you account for it in the, the role or the check. Yeah, it's just funny to think about how one group, we like difficult terrain, or we're sick of difficult terrain, or we want to go back to it because it's tactical and fun. Like even, even there's no right way to do it, even for the same group because you evolve and you want different things. Is the lesson learned here to kind of keep an eye on, on the pulse of what you've done a lot of recently and change it up? I think that'd be fair. Yeah. Even with, an, even with a standing group. I mean, that's, you know, we did a lot of the same thing for the first few years, but in the last three or four years, we have alternated the heck out of things. We have, and that's been joyous. And our level of enjoyment has uh, grown precipitously, so. Cool. That's All right. a good word. Sorry, we keep interrupting you. No, Mike. no. These, these are good conversations. Um, area four was um, more spiders. So basically this time it was uh, three of the regular spiders and two of the stronger spiders. And then this was also the encounter where the web trap was in. And the, uh, the thing about the web trap is if you made a perception check, I think, or a nature check. Um, yeah, if you a DC 18 nature check lets a player know that fire damage from a spell or item such as a torch will melt the web. And I think that's where you were maybe remembering you were trying to figure out how to like maybe catch the web on fire or something like that. And the nature check maybe was or wasn't happening. I'm kind of fuzzy on that, but yeah. So I remember you doing something, something different here. I remember that mixed in with the spider webs, there were these basically super thin threads strung across the hallways and if you walked through the spider web and you broke the thread, then you got blasted by, I don't know, darts or fire or something. So I remember story-wise being like, okay, whoa, 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 I have the higher AC. You know, my dragonborn gets up front. I think he resisted um, fire damage as well. But anyway, he got up front, and I remember him using his hammer. He would wave it in front of him in the square in front of him and take a step and wave it in front of him and take a step, trying to break those threads. Um before he made it i distinctly remember this mike and mike's looking like ah, i don't remember this at all yeah i don't remember that at all <laughs> all right well fair enough um yeah it, it's kind of disappointing because reading back through these dungeon dashes i i don't remember much about it there's not a lot that stands out from it um the second one has a little more a little more memory to jog just because it's it's more of a a labyrinthian i guess kind of dungeon but this one it's pretty linear. I mean, it's got a couple alternate passages you can go to, but there's there's no roadblocks. It's literally just a map for three combat encounters. So I want to skip to the end. What 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 what, do you, what was the boss encounter? What was it? Was there a mini boss? Was nope. there just a boss? Nope. There there was no boss. Uh, literally, the the last things you fought were more of the same spiders you fought at the beginning of the dungeon. So literally, this is just a 
clear the dungeon, uh, clear it of the necromantic energy. Hey, the dungeon's better. And then here's the portal from this dungeon into the entrance of the next dungeon, which is where the actual boss lived. Um, so what was interesting about this was that this dungeon dash was actually level two, whereas the one with the person I was using as a boss for this encounter was a level one dungeon dash. <laughs> so you guys are actually working backwards in difficulty, but I kind of had to do it that way so you could you could have a boss to encounter. Did you notice that? Like, like did you see us have an easier time with the with the second with with the cult of Bane? Oh yeah, no, you guys smashed <laughs> smashed that dungeon. <laughs> I don't remember that. Okay, yeah. Wait, so, yeah. so walk us through the cult of Bane. Real quick question. So it was us and it was Chris. Yeah. Anybody I'm else? Sure. No. No. Okay. Yeah, and I think you were playing the Dragonborn Knight. Yeah, one of us let you play one of our. No, I was playing the Dragonborn because of the maybe you were playing the Minotaur. Which is ironic, considering I named him Destinian, but <laughs> but I, I remember us giving you some of our characters. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Oh, so this so this was the follow up to the uh, to the first game. Or well, the, so the first, first two games. Yeah, Mike's yep. first game was Cobalt Hall. Yes, which was just me, which and I Chris, missed, which I missed that. Which one. you missed. Yep. The next one was 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 the last episode, which was uh the the Hall of the Spider God. Yeah, thank you. The Hall of the Spider God. And you were there for and that. And this was the continuation of that. Yes. yes. Okay. Because I, I okay that that okay it makes sense now. I'm like I don't remember a third game, but that's because I've smushed the two games together. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That okay. Now I don't feel crazy anymore. Good. I wish I'd not felt crazy ten minutes ago, but you know. Do you remember who you played? Uh, I never. You know, I, I, I don't. I don't remember who I, you played I, either. I have. I have like three characters that it's really been imprinted upon me. Uh, of. of who they are, and if it's if I'm playing like a one-off character, I I just I don't build any bond with that character at all. That's fair. I completely understand. But you that. know, I will say this: the character I'm playing right now, Ezrin, I'm starting to feel it. Are you really? I really, yeah, I'm starting to feel Ezrin. See, you were okay. I want to save that for talking about Pathfinder. Yes. So let's let's save that. But I, oh man, I want to have that conversation. Yep. All right, let's talk about Cult of Bane. So Cult of Bane, I, I have that one printed out actually. Yep. Because before you decided to DM, I was going to run this one. And I had I had printed it out. I had never really read it in depth, so, that, so it wasn't spoiled for me at all. Um, I hadn't paid attention to the story of the monsters. I just found this free fourth edition thing, printed it out. I had it in a folder somewhere, and I never looked at it. Um, but looking at it now, it's only five pages, including yep. an entire page of monsters and an entire page of maps. Yep. The uh, the other dungeon dash was just as small. It's it's five pages. Um, it it interspaces the the monsters in with each encounter since it kind of uses a few different monsters throughout the dungeon. Um, but it's it's very small too. It's only three combat encounters. I love a good short dungeon. Yeah, which is ironic because again, these two dungeons. If if I'm remembering correctly, maybe I'm remembering the wrong game, but I think this took us all day. No, I, I believe you. Like, like an edition, eight hour, just a combat with even if you, like. When you got to the point in the combat where you knew you were going to win, you still had like 20 minutes left to combat. Yeah. 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 That's true. Yeah. That that's very accurate. Um which that that actually reminds me something something that 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 I was looking at in this dungeon is looking at the player stats or the the monster stats and something that I had absolutely forgotten about because it doesn't exist in any of the modules we play is where the the monsters have different different stat types to attack when your player is attacking right so like this risen skeleton that we'll get to here in a little bit when you attack him he has an ac of 15 a fortitude of 13 a reflex of 13 and a will of 13 
So depending on what type of attack your player is using, it attacks that different kind of stat, which when you think about it, it's brilliant. It makes it a little more, yeah, it makes it a little more flexible and, you know, different players could attack different things. You know, your, your wizard can attack the will, the, the ranger can attack the reflex, your fighter can attack the AC. But what sucked about that, and I think this is also what held us up a lot in fourth edition, was that unless you had a very, very balanced party where you had everyone being able to attack those different abilities, you got stuck on a lot of characters. So that's true. So I just gestured to the characters. So the characters were the same way. Not only did the monsters have four defenses, characters had four defenses. Now I'll say this going back. So you'll see this. You see it when we play Pathfinder. Most attacks, almost every attack is versus your AC. But the minute there's a spell save or a saving throw, it's the same thing. It's fortitude, reflex, and will. Um, what they tried to do in fourth edition is take those saving throws and say, no, no, those aren't saving throws anymore. Those are actually just stats, and whoever's what they try to do is they try to shift the rolling. In third edition and in Pathfinder, if I physically attack you, I roll my attack roll against your static defense. But in three point five slash Pathfinder slash whatever, um, if I cast a and even in early editions, if I cast a spell on you, then you roll your defense, your saving throw. And Wizards was like, yeah, that's confusing. It's hard to explain that to people, to new people. And they really wanted 4th edition to be the edition that was accessible to new people. So it's a real simple... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know, I know. But it's a real simple thing to say, hey, you know what? If the actor is always the roller, whoever is taking the action is rolling the dice. So if you're casting a spell, then you're rolling the dice against Fortitude, Reflex, or Will, which are static. So I really love what they were trying to do. But you're right, Mike, what was hard, and the lesson I, I take away from it is that the crunchier the system is, the more the players have to really work together to do exactly what you said. Hey, we've got to have a guy who can attack Fortitude, a guy who can attack Will, a guy who can attack Reflex, and a guy who can attack AC. And if, if some of those are the same guy, if the same guy can attack both AC and Will, like, like a good cleric, then great. Yeah. But um, but you have to have all those. and And... I'll say this, and I don't consider you guys dense, right? You're very smart. I love hanging out with you. But when I was DMing you in 4th edition for years, years, I'd put you against monsters, and you guys always did nothing but yep. attack its AC. Yep. You would you would even give us hints. Like, like you would try to guide us of, he looks like he's a little mentally slow, wink, wink. I, I remember having moments like that. Yeah, like maybe you should attack this guy's will because his <laughs> AC is 30. Yeah. And I think that was the thing I liked the least about it, because you would literally have combat encounters where you could invalidate every player in that party, except for the one person who had the right attack type to attack him. So you literally had attack after attack after attack wasted where nothing would happen. And you had everybody just kind of sitting around with their thumbs up Wait. places, except for the one character who was effective. Wait, you mean you could attack things other than AC? What? <laughs> That, and that's, that's appropriate. What, and, and for those of you at home, that's what I dealt with every session. Yeah, and no, you're right. And I, at, that was a point when I, I think I was just there for the social activity. Like I, I don't think I developed like the real love for playing the game so much. Like now, I just really enjoy playing the game. 
Yeah. It, you know, screw you guys. Otherwise, I just see you guys because because that's when we, you know, when we, when we play. <laughs> but really, at that point, I wasn't that invested in the in the mechanics of the gameplay. In fact, in fourth edition, like, and I still do it, not as bad as like, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. What do I do? Well, and the other thing is this: the other complexity this added that 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 I remember you and I having conversations with uh, Brian were when you rolled your attack roll. You would have to remember to tell me. So, so you'd be like, "Okay, I'm gonna do burning hands roll." Okay, I got a 17, and I'm like, "Okay, 17. Wh- what? what is that? What? Oh, yeah, versus what?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you'd have to be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, versus reflex." And like, I should have uh, burning hands. Obviously, I know the answer, but there were some. I mean, so many different classes with different feats and different names for those feats. Yep. Everyone always had something where I was like, okay, what is that attack? Yep. That, I, I, that I just had a very vivid memory of us having to read verbatim the, the stupid card every time we did something to, 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 to give you the information you needed to do to adjudicate it. So most of our 4E time, I think, was literally sit, sitting there reading cards aloud, you know, this attacks a blah, blah, blah's fortitude with blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that, that was not fun. Yeah, so I'm looking at my cards right now for my fighters, and the way they no- noted it was like ranged basic attack, attack, dexterity versus AC. So it, it was always that, that versus. And there, on the cards, there's not a big, bold thing where here's what you're attacking. This is how tiny it is. Look, look at this, Mike. So dragon breath for the dragonborn, plus seven versus reflex. So I'm literally sitting right beside Dusty, and I had to lean over to be able to read it. That's how tiny it is. That looks like about a seven-point font. Yeah, it's super tiny. Yeah, it's it's not not good. Okay. Anyway, you know, before we started podcasting, I would have told you that I really liked Fourth Edition, but as I re-listen to our episodes, man, we make fun of it a lot. See, the thing is, re- recording the podcasts, we make fun of it, but I have a much bigger soft spot for it than I did. Yeah, every episode you talk about how you want to play Fourth Edition again, and we're going to do that by God. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am going to run Keep on the Shadowfell for you guys, and we're going to hate every minute of it. Probably, I guarantee yeah, it. Probably, <laughs> probably. But it's like, um, God, I'm going to piss some people off right now. If there are any of the listeners who listen to the other podcasts that I do, like other movies that you you people love and you remember fondly, but you go back and watch it and it's crap. Perfect example is Transformers the movie. Yep, there are people who think it's one of the greatest things ever until you watch it and then you realize oh that's this is terrible it's terrible <laughs> so but yeah i'm certain i'm certain i, I love fourth edition right now but i will freaking hate it you know i loved the dolph lundgren masters of the universe movie, yes <laughs> and i still love it i have it on blu-ray and i will still watch it and my daughter loves it yes that's she awesome. wants to watch quote the real he-man and real for her means not cartoon yes so but it's not a great movie yeah but my God, the first Ninja Turtles movie was so good. It, stands it, it up. is. It, it stands is. up. No, it's, it's so watchable. Okay, it, it is absolutely watchable. It's very okay. I, I'm sorry. I recently rewatched the first Ninja Turtles movie, and I was struck by how how good it, it actually it's, was. It's a much more mature, not in the sense that it's gratuitous and less sexual content or anything, but it's it doesn't. Even though it is, it doesn't feel like a cash uh, a cash grab. That's because it was an independent film. People don't want to think about that when the first Ninja Turtles movie was made, but it was literally an independent film. It had no studio backing until it hit, and it was a hit. And then it started making tons of cash. Oh, so they they had to shop around for distributors, that right? Yep, yep. I didn't know that. Yep. They basically made it as an independent film. Is Ninja Turtles 2 an independent film? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, we, we do not endorse Ninja Turtles 2 here on RPG Lessons Learned. Go Ninja, go Ninja. <laughs> Back on topic. Back, Back on, on topic. topic. Okay. So, um, so walk us through, what are the high points of the, the Cult of Bane? So, skeletons. Skeletons? And I say skeletons because I use skeletons jokingly in this campaign because that's what Bort and Brute would misspell skeletons. Ske- now I'm saying that's it right, skeletons. Yeah. So so basically, yes, um, this dungeon just throws a bunch of skeletons at you. It's not a linear dungeon, so this was good in that it has kind of that. Th- this has that very much, you know. You have to trigger lever A to open door B and all that. So it, it's kind of good for that. It gives a little bit of flexibility, especially compared to the last one that was just a linear walkthrough dungeon. Um, but I think the the one thing that actually made this dungeon interesting was that in pretty much every encounter, there was a series of uh, urns. And basically, you guys could smash the urns for a chance at treasure. And when you smash the urn, that was a D6 roll to determine what was in the roll or in the urn. Um, so uh, one- Those were our first ever random treasure rolls it was no because for all the fourth edition that we played the treasures were predefined by the adventure yep we we didn't have we didn't roll against random tables yep and it was it was minor so one and six was nothing but ashes uh two was a small silver ring worth five gold pieces three was 30 silver coins four was a gold necklace worth 20 gold which is incredible and then five was 10 gold coins, which actually, now that I think about it, 4E gold is not the same as all the other systems we play. So maybe that wasn't that much gold. But uh, I, I, I do remember coming out of the end of this this dungeon, you guys basically had a bunch of small silver rings that belonged to a bunch of dead people. And I think I tried to guilt your characters into feeling guilty about that, but none, none, nobody took the hook. Yeah, no. Um. I don't know if this one's really worth going through encounter by encounter. No, it's just the hot point. So we fought a lot of skeletons. Yeah. Um, there were there were a couple of traps, right? There was there were some unstable floors. There were some grasping arms. Yep. That 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 was that is there was there's some hidden hidden levers that unlock doors to make things a little easier if you guys pass a perception check. Um, other than that, it was just finding the the way to unlock the door you needed to get to to get to the final boss. And here, but I do remember the bosses. Um, I remember you sent me an email. You sent me where you're looking for minis. Yep. You were like, "Hey, do you have any minis of cultists?" And I was like, "Yes, I do." <laughs> <laughs> um, I forget which of the D and D board games it was, but there there were these three robed cultists holding daggers. Oh man, I can't remember if it was if it was Drist or the Wrath of a Shardalon or or Ravenloft, but there's three big. Um, Adventure game board games had a ton. Of, each one had like forty minis in it, and that's why I bought those games. But they had these cultists. Um, I hadn't completely painted them yet. They just had a, they just had black primer on them. But I remember you yep. using those for the for the cultists. Yep. I, I think probably what stood out the most about this dungeon was just the absurdity that the boss was a bugbear who is a cultist priest who has these cultists and the skeletons and all these other things at his employ. And it's just these, these two bugbears like running this whole necromancer racket. And now think, was he a bugbear in, in the adventure? No, that, that was something I you, made you up. You did that. You did that. So the, the first, uh, the, the hall of the spider God, not Cobalt hall, but spot hall of the spider God. So the second one that by the adventure was a bugbear. And it was from there that I decided to make this guy also a bugbear and to make them cousins. That's a great... So I, I wasn't good at that. That's something else I picked up from you. What was, again, changing the adventures, connecting the adventures, um, tying in this adventure to that adventure. You did that with the note. We talked about it in the last podcast, how how 
you had the note and you used the note to, to, to tease this adventure. And then here you are changing this adventure to tie it back to the previous. I, I, I didn't do a great job of that in my early days of DMing is tying the adventures together. Well, thank you. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's not something you have to do, but it's something I wanted to do to, to make the adventures feel a little more connected. You know, I wanted to, to feel less like, oh, I'm going into town and I'm talking to this NPC that's got a, a you know, question mark above their head and they give me a quest and they just tell me to go what to do. I wanted to give it a little bit of, of progression storyline specifically so that you guys had to go and, and seek help of figuring out what was what was next. So giving you those hooks to explore. So what lessons did you take away from this, from these two dungeons that you tied together into one mega dungeon? Um, I would just have to say is that, you know, you, you can take smaller dungeons and tie them together, but you do have to put in the work to make them, to make, them make sense of how they tie in together. Um, and that does take a little time and effort. So uh, I kind of went the easy way since I just did, you know, oh, hey, this, this cavern has a portal to this other place and... It's all ran by this guy who's the cousin of the guy you killed in the first adventure or the second adventure. Um, so I guess I would have to say the the main lesson for all these dungeons is that they give you the predefined hooks and you can use those, but sometimes it makes it a little more uh, cohesive if you just ignore them and come up with your own overall hook. What would you do differently if you ran this today? If, we, if we'd never run this game and, or, or if you could go back in time and rerun this game, what would you, with all the knowledge that you gained, what would you do differently? I would probably run these in two separate sessions, not knowing that they would go on as long as they did. Um, I don't know. So when I listen to wrestling pod, so I used to listen to the Stone Cold Steve Austin podcast, and, and I was really struck by something he said about the psychology of wrestling in terms of getting, you know, well, sorry. The quote is, the thing he always says is, if you think you're going too slow, slow down. And he talks about how important it is slow punches, slow kicks, slow throws, because you want to give the crowd a chance to understand what's going on and appreciate it. And if you throw that nice slow punch and, and, and you know, you, you really do the moves one at a time, the crowd can follow it and it really helps make it legible. It makes your, your, your wrestling match legible for the crowd. Again, not just fourth edition, but almost any RPG Back to that lesson learned, I said before, about you almost can't have the scope be too small. If you think your scope is too small, zoom in more. Like, you can play role-playing games. If you read of Dyson Men, which Brian alluded to a couple podcasts ago, these games grew out of massive war games. And if you want to play massive war games with massive combats, you can do that. There's Those games predate D&D. H.G. Wells had written one called Little Wars. Um there, so, so whenever I, whenever a new RPG comes out and people on the internet are like, "What were you know? Are there mass combat rules?" Like, guys, if you want to play mass combat, there are different games for that. But what makes these games different, and what Gygax and Arnson did that was so different, is zooming in on these individual characters. So individual characters and individual interactions, um, it, you, you almost can't get too small because you make the game legible for people. They get a chance to think about, what does my character think of this? What does my character think of what this NPC is saying right now? What does my character think of murdering this individual goblin? And a lot of problems that we've had, like you mentioned the silver rings and us not feeling bad about robbing graves. Well, we were zoomed out. We were zoomed out on the content and trying to get through the content, and we were zoomed out on you know this thinking of the dungeon as one unit instead of thinking of, Hey, you're in a room with an urn 
Do you smash the urn? Like, I wouldn't even smash the urn. These ashes probably belong to people who were sacrificed to make necromantic rituals. Yeah, or um, this this whole catacomb complex was taken over by necromancers, and these were good people who lived good lives. Yeah. But when you zoom in, you enjoy the character-building opportunities to think about that. When you zoom out, you you you... Of course, you smash the urn for the twenty gold pieces. So, <laughs> I, I, I I I like I like that, and I hadn't put that together before. You almost can't make the scope too small. You almost can't zoom in far enough. I think that's pretty good. All right, is that RPG lessons learned for this week? I think it is. Yep. All right, thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.